Welcome to the Artist Rights Watch podcast. I'm your host, Nick Patel, a songwriter, a publisher, and a student of the music industry. Alongside me, I have David Lowry and Chris Castle. David Lowry is a platinum-selling songwriter and performer for bands Cracker and Capra van Beethoven. He currently lectures to music business students at the University of Georgia and is an ongoing artist rights activist. Chris Castle is a music lawyer in Austin, Texas, where he represents artists and music tech companies and works on public policy issues for artist rights, and his content information is in the show notes. Right, so, for our second podcast, we're going to be talking about antitrust anti-competition law and how this relates to songwriters, what's the history there, where we're kind of looking to go in the future with these regulations. So antitrust laws are regulations that encourage competition and they protect consumers from anti-competitive mergers and business practices. Um, Supporters of the antitrust say that they are necessary for open marketplace because in theory competition among sellers gives consumers lower prices and higher quality products and services more choices and more innovation and antitrust is consisted of three acts which is the sherman act of 1980 the clayton act of 1914 and the federal trade commission act of 1914. so what are these three acts so the sherman act allows the federal government to take companies to court if it believes that they are protecting in anti-competitive practices and abusing their monopoly power. The Clayton Act prohibits anti-competitive mergers, acquisitions, price fixing, or any practice that weakens competition, and the Federal Trade Commission's Act further banned unfair competitive practices, such as those that go against consumer protection laws. And so I'll have some articles linked that discuss in further detail what antitrust laws are and what the three acts do. So if you're interested in looking at that, please check out the show notes and you'll see those articles there. So the big question for today is, how does it interact with songwriter royalties? Why does it matter to songwriters? Why are we covering the story? So songwriters are affected by antitrust specifically with consent decrees and consent decrees have governed the process of licensing public performance rights at ASCAP and BMI. Due to the changing nature of the music industry, it has diminished the effectiveness of the consent decrees to help songwriters earn what they deserve. So the United States enacted the consent decrees with ASCAP and BMI to resolve competitive concerns that arise from the exclusive, collective, and blanket licensing of individual copyrights. They are used to encourage competition between ASCAP, BMI, other PROs for members and music users, and specifically between ASCAP and VMI and their respective members to license copyright works to music users. The decrees prohibit exclusive licensing and protect the ability of ASCAP and VMI members to license works directly if they wish. Some argue that the consent decrees fail to reflect the way Americans consume music today. Now we'll talk more in depth about fractional versus 100% licensing, but also partial withdrawal is in question. Partial withdrawal is when a songwriter or publisher will be able to limit ASCAP or BMI's ability to grant licenses for its works to certain types of users. Thus, a songwriter or publisher could authorize ASCAP or BMI to grant licenses for its works to bars or terrestrial broadcast stations, but prevent the PRO from licensing its works to digital streaming services, thus acquiring such services to negotiate direct deals with a songwriter or publisher if they wish to perform its songs. Some argue this will lead to higher rates. And there's also been talk about ASCAP and BMI being able to license other rights, such as mechanicals and sync. However, with the consent decrees, ASCAP is currently prohibited and BMI does not address it. 
The Ascom and BMI Descent Decrees should be reviewed every 5 years to assess whether the decrees continue to achieve their objective to protect competition and whether modifications to the decrees are appropriate in light of changes in technology in the music industry, competition for the benefit of consumers, competition for the benefit of innovation, and most importantly, competition for the benefit of the artists and songwriters without whom the American music industry would not exist. So now I'm going to call up David and Chris and we're going to delve even deeper into antitrust. Right, so David, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. I hope you're good. I just want to jump straight into the conversation because we have a big conversation ahead of us. Um, gets deep into the weeds. So I'm going to start off with this to keep it broad for the beginning. What is the history with antitrust and artists historically and how did all this start? Yeah, so there are public performance rights organizations for songwriters that license basically your public performance of your music to radio stations and other places like stores and bars and venues and stuff. So in the 1930s, ASCAP was not the only game in town, but they were the biggest sort of, they were the biggest one out there. And radio stations and ASCAP were sort of radio stations, which were not conglomerates, which were basically all sort of owned by one. They're all independent, like radio stations were independent, right? So um, independently owned. They weren't big conglomerates. Basically, they got in a conflict over rates. Uh, you know, ASCAP was kind of the only game in town, had most of the pop songs. And so ASCAP wanted a certain amount for their music and radio stations didn't necessarily want to pay it. So radio stations uh, essentially organized a boycott of ASCAP. And at the same time, radio stations, the ASCAP may have been, you know, acting as a monopoly. So the Department of Justice stepped in and set up consent decrees whereby they essentially um, have supervised uh, since 1941 ASCAP rate negotiations with radio stations and other broadcasters, now digital broadcasters as well. At some point, BMI comes into the picture. Do you remember how that happened, Chris? I think, I think they asked to be in the picture. Okay. Uh, around, I'm going to say it was 19 in the 1960s, somewhere around there. So you end up with this quasi uh, sort of government compulsory license that isn't really in statute. It's just that you have these consent decrees that are supposed to be temporary that lets the Department of Justice sort of oversee um, songwriters, public performance royalties. Uh, what they essentially, what their organizations charge broadcasters and such. And ASCAP and BMI, the two main organizations, both are under these decrees. There's both an associated rate court that sets the rate. Um, and these have been there. ASCAP is the oldest consent decree, we think, still in operation. And BMI is a little about 10 years younger. But they've been in, you know, they've been in effect for, you know, over, you know, like 70 years now. And you have a completely different landscape on the other side where you don't have radio stations that are 
Um, yeah, I mean, now you have these big conglomerate radio stations, and of course, these consent decrees also just uh, cover the consent. Uh, the, the, they also cover the digital, um, you know, near monopolies like YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Amazon. So basically, what what happens with these is that uh, remembering the ASCAP boy or the boycott and ASCAP, had, and that was in response to ASCAP's refusal to license. ASCAP under the consent decree um, cannot refuse, and neither can BMI, cannot refuse to license. So basically what happens is if you've got a, a service that wants an ASCAP or BMI license, you send them a letter and you say, hi, I want, I want to um, uh, negotiate a license with you. And from that point on, you are allowed to use the catalog um, each catalog and you're supposed to enter into good faith negotiations with them. And then there's um, some discussion of uh, a retroactive payment at whatever point in time your rate is approved. This leads to um, them trying to uh, really try to use something that they've already done. Uh, some try to fit you into some sort of rate that they, they've already um, negotiated or, or gotten approved by the court uh, so they can um, avoid having to explain themselves too much, right? So, uh, but very often you go back into court and sometimes, you know, really like for Pandora and some of those companies, the consent decree was just, that, that notice was just, uh, and so-called good faith negotiation was just really like a base to be tagged. What they really wanted was they wanted to get to court. <laughs> and they wanted, they wanted to start wearing them down and, you know, making it expensive and appealing and, you know, all, all the other litigation tricks. Um, and, um, you know, that's really what ended up happening a lot of times. They, I, the, those good faith negotiations were not really ever taken seriously, I think, anyway, by the tech companies. So both of you argue that it's out of date, these decrees. Um, why do you say that? Well, um, first, I already mentioned a little bit is that, uh, you know, if you're looking at market power now, you have these companies, you know, in the case of Google and Apple, Amazon, you have these companies that have a trillion dollar market valuation, right? And these little tiny songwriter organizations, even though the two main songwriters organizations together, they represent like, you know, probably about 40% of the market each, right? Yeah, it's significant, but, uh, you know, just by market share, it's just totally backwards. But remember, okay, so a, a principal element of antitrust is that, like, producers can't get together and fix a rate. And essentially, songwriters aren't really laborers. They're really producers, right? So what we normally do is we give exemptions to things like farmers or um uh, walnut growers, sporting unions, sports teams, and stuff like that. But songwriters don't have that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's some of it's inevitable that, yes, you have a group of songwriters who are getting together and setting a rate, but it's partly because we're mostly individuals. But it doesn't seem fairly applied when you consider the broadcasters 
uh, and the digital distributors, their trade organizations. You might comment on that a little more, Chris, because you know more about that than I do. So, yeah, so basically what you've got here on the one side is you've got, um, there's an organ, this is best highlighted by this organization called the Mike Coalition, which really was designed to um, stop um, GMR, <laughs> you know, like stop anybody from, from um, you know, getting outside of the consent decrees, right? So who's in the Mike Coalition? All the broadcasters, right? The National Association of Broadcasters, all the restaurants, all the hotels, all the retailers, <laughs> right? The Consumer Electronics Association, right? Um, Amazon was a member, but they withdrew. NPR was a member, but they withdrew. Uh, but there's still a lot of these people. I mean, the combined market capitalization of all the members of the Mike Coalition who lobby routinely, right, against, um, you know, like CSAC, for example, being outside a consent decree, you know, all of, all, you know, are always on the other side, you know, arguing in favor of, you know, suppressing those collusive songwriters, you know, these people have a combined market cap probably in the multiple trillions of dollars, right? <laughs> and, you know, I don't even, I frankly don't understand how these guys can all get together and have a cup of coffee without violating the consent, the, the Sherman Act, you know? I mean, I, the antitrust laws, I, I just don't see it because there's, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of rules about how price leaders can, can um, you know, essentially collude without actually having a written agreement or something amongst themselves, right? Just that they're so big that they dominate the market. So, you know, I, I don't know if that necessarily applies in this case, but it certainly is a, a flavor that, that comes into it whenever you deal with a my coalition. So the idea that the two organizations, which together I think probably gross about a billion dollars each now, although that's gonna go down, uh, but together they gross about a billion dollars each, uh, you know, which Google alone will probably make by the end of the week, right? Um, is kind of a joke, right? I mean, it's not, it's just not, it doesn't make a lot of sense. There, I mean, you know, there, there's a benefit to having collective bargaining, right? I've always thought they should make ASCAP and BMI kind of like a union, right? I mean, they give, they have an antitrust exemption for unions that collectively bargain, all kinds of unions. Uh, so why not ASCAP and BMI? But, you know, they, they don't. And that's, um, you know, kind of what we're up against is there's these, these huge companies that have a tremendous amount of lobbying power that um, and aren't afraid to exercise it. That basically want to crush songwriters, although they they try to make you believe that they're trying to crush ASCAP and BMI, right? Of course, ASCAP and BMI are songwriters, <laughs> right? Uh, so it's it's not very it's not very cool, you know, to be seen as bullying songwriters, but it's plenty cool to be seen as bullying. ASCAP and BMI, I guess, you know, so uh, it's kind of nonsensical all the way around. 
So under a review of the consent decrees, there is terminology such as fractional licensing and 100% licensing, and the District of Justice has pushed for 100% licensing. Could you guys touch on what this means? What it is is like, look, Nick, if you write a song with me, you administer your share, I administer my share, right? Usually you have a license, not a license, you usually have an agreement between songwriters where you license your share, I license my share, right? I can't license your share, but I can license my share and I'm glad to put somebody else in touch with you so you can license your share. That's called fractional licensing. The rationale of the PROs is really set up for um, fractional licensing because like if you go to BMI, what you're licensing is BMI's, all the songs that BMI songwriters, not all the songs, well, yeah, like all of the song shares that BMI writers hold, right? The ones they wrote in the past, the ones they write in the next year, whatever, right? And the licenses are designed so that you're getting just the BMI writer shares. And then you go to ASCAP and you get the ASCAP writer shares, right? So they were designed really to do this fractional licensing. 100% um, licensing is another concept, which is that I can license your share uh, I can license your share on your behalf. Um, but if we had a private contract between us to administer our songs, that would violate our private contract. So 100% licensing is a little weird for how most professional songwriters and co-writers do business because if we were forced to license our songs 100%, like I'm gonna license, Nick writes for ASCAP, but I'm gonna go ahead and license his share, 100% licensing would violate our contracts with each other as writers. And it also puts an administrative burden on me because then I have to account to you or in the case of BMI, BMI has to account to ASCAP, right? Yeah, it totally does not work. And, and by the way, this was uh, August 4th, 2016 was the date of the, uh, of the uh, um, when, when the Justice Department closed the, con the consent decree review and issued this ruling on um, fractional licensing. Remember, the, and this gets into publishers too, right? And, and so when, when you sign up with ASCAP or BMI or any of the PROs, they're gonna collect the, the publisher share and the writer share and they'll pay out, well, they'll collect, it's a little bit different, but they, they pay out the writer share and the publisher share. So when you sign up, you have to have, if you're an ASCAP writer, you have to have an ASCAP publishing company. So when you start mixing and matching all these things, it just, it's impossible. <laughs> you know, for the system to work. And if you don't have this kind of clarity, you know, where all the ASCAP works are licensed by ASCAP, all the BMI works are licensed by BMI, period. You can't have what, you know, and, and this is all kind of revolves from a theory of copyright law, which is um, 
sounds in uh, tenants in common theory and real property, right? And tenant, a tenant in common is allowed to issue a non-exclusive license in the whole if they have an undivided interest in the property. So people will say, well, co-writers have an undivided interest in the um, copyright, right? In whatever, they're, in whatever song they're writing. And so any of them can, can license. Well, yeah, that may be true, but that never happens with public performance, right? Well, and as soon as you write, yeah, and as soon as you write a contract, you have effectively divided it, right? That's right, and, and yeah, subject to subject to whatever agreement they have amongst themselves, right? And so one of the first things we always do whenever we have a band that's co-writing, even together, frankly, but um, particularly with outside writers, is we get a sort of a, at least a watered down joint administration agreement where we say, well, you can't go issue licenses in our, anything that we've recorded without our consent. And um, matter of fact, probably not even with our consent, <laughs> we'll issue the license, right? Or not. And, and so this is, you know, it's inherent in, in the system that, you know, people administer their own share. That's just the way it typically works. That should be the default, which is if you don't have, if you don't have an agreement to the contrary, the assumption would be that you're gonna, you're each gonna administer your own share but that you can't issue a license in the whole thing without um, the consent of your co-writers. You know, I mean, who would want to do that anyway? I mean, that, that's a good way to anger people, right? So um, the whole thing just didn't make any sense at all. So what did 100% have to do with big tech? Did it favor big tech? How did it favor big tech? Oh, it definitely favors big tech. <laughs> yeah. So, well, there was, there is another, so there's four songwriter performing rights organizations in the United States. There's ASCAP BMI. There's a much smaller one called CSAC. And then there's a little bitty tiny one called GMR that was just started in say around 2013, 2014. And what this was is the brainchild of Irving Azoff. And it was basically, he thought, that his writers, he managed some of the biggest writers in the world, that they weren't getting paid enough, right, for their songs. I, I imagine that's why he started it. And so essentially, GMR is probably a couple hundred of the biggest songwriters in the world with the most iconic tracks, like say the Eagles tracks, you know, largest, Eagles greatest hits, biggest selling album of all time now, okay? So that's a, those songs are really, really significant. So it's a small, it's a small little PRO that represents a very small amount of writers. And so they broke away from ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC, formed their own PRO, which they're perfect, it's perfectly legal for them to do this, and then tried to negotiate directly with the big companies, right? And basically YouTube was having none of it. And eventually there was a rumored lawsuit of a billion dollars from GMR against YouTube. I don't know if it was ever filed or if that's how much um, GMR was gonna sue YouTube for, but it was a billion dollars, right? So, okay, where does 100% licensing come in? Well, it, it turns out that most songs, big songs are generally written 
as teams with lots of co-writers, right? That's just the way the businesses work. Not all of them. I don't know if that's the case with every evil song, but a lot of the songs in the GMR catalog had co-writers. And I would imagine many of those co-writers were BMI and ASCAP, right? So BMI and ASCAP are under the consent decrees. So what 100% licensing would advantage a company like Big Tech, how it would advantage a company like Big Tech is that, well, you know, basically you could, if there was a lawsuit like this, essentially 100% licensing would allow, you know, um, YouTube to say, just go to ASCAP and BMI and say, you gotta issue me those licenses on those songs that are co-written with GMR writers, essentially depopulating a lot of the songs in the lawsuit. Is that is that right, Chris? Do I, do I get that right? Yeah, that, well, basically what, what YouTube, well, there are a couple of arguments that YouTube made. That was one of them, which is that, well, we already have a license, <laughs> you know. Through 100% licensing. Yeah, there, there's another step in there, which is that, um, when GMR withdrew, because in order for GMR to have any catalog, uh, its writers would have to withdraw from whatever PRO they were in. And so there's, um, there's a um, argument that if, if the works were licensed by ASCAP and BMI before the writers withdrew to go to GMR, that there's kind of a tail period where um, they're still subject to the ASCAP BMI license, even if the writers have withdrawn, right? That doesn't go on forever, but uh, there, there's, a, there's a period of time. And so YouTube said, well, you know, maybe you can do this at some point, but you can't do it right now. And Irving didn't like that. So uh, there was a big dust up about that. But this is the, this is the point. It's like, it's, it's, uh, the, the writers should be able to just go establish, you know, have anybody they could have their business manager do the licensing and they, they, you know, they should be able to have anybody they want um, administer their catalogs, but there's an, a lot of inertia towards existing agreements with them and that everybody has and that they litigated, <laughs> right? So they're kind of committed to those agreements and uh, because of the nature of the consent decree, which makes you litigate every license and go to a rate court, have the court set the rate uh, to approximate a free market that has never existed <laughs> and, or hasn't existed for a very long time, so long that it may as well never have existed. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's easier for these guys to just say, no, no, I don't want, I don't, I, what I don't need is another, another PRO. So let's just not do that, right? And they'll sue. But when Urban hung in there, bless him. And, um, you know, he's, you know, I think they're now kind of further along. And, you know, eventually you just get on the checklist, you know, okay, well, so I've got to do GMR. <laughs> you know, it's one more deal, you know? So, yeah, so what happens is that this, rule clarification by the Department of Justice that came about in 2014 that they wanted to make it so BMI and ASCAP were subject to 100% licensing comes along at a very convenient time for YouTube 
and a number of other services that we're facing having to license from GMR, right? Right. It makes you wonder. <laughs> Nobody asked for 100% licensing before, and now all of a sudden it comes up and it suddenly gets pushed through. Yeah, nobody in their right mind would ever actually ask for 100% licensing because the layers of complexity are just too great. We have a chart, uh, actually, uh, that I did with uh, Steve Winogradsky um, that we can put in the show notes that kind of shows you how idiotic this whole thing is, right? Uh, it just, because it just collapses under its own weight, but I'll send you that. This was all courtesy of. So, and, and finally. One Renata Hess. <laughs> was it Hess? Yeah, Renata Hess, who was the, uh, yeah, acting, Renata Hess, what, what, what was specifically her, her position there? She was the acting head of uh, the antitrust division, deputy assistant attorney general for the antitrust division. Acting. <laughs> Acting is very important, okay? Because um, there's a law called the Vacancies Act. And um, the Vacancies Act says that the president can appoint persons to fill a vacancy uh, in what would otherwise be a Senate-confirmed job as long as they're an acting head of that or, or as long as they're, they're, they have acting in their title and they don't have all the uh, authority of the, the confirmed candidate, right? So you have to dial it back a little bit um, and there are certain things they can, can't do and what have you, depends on the job. Uh, but the president then has 300, if it happens in the beginning of the administration, the president has 300 days to uh, either get that person confirmed or, or, or somebody else confirmed. Um, and then they have to step down, although there's, of course, you know, ways to extend that. And then, um, but not very many. And, and, then, um, and then if it happens towards the end of the administration, I think it's 270 days. It's, it's a lesser, it's still a lot of days, but it's less than if it happens in the beginning. And so she was appointed um, in, I'm gonna say 2015. Uh, so she had about two years to go and they somehow managed to uh, get her in and out without having to have her confirmed by the Senate because one of the first things that would come up, would have come up, <laughs> is her close relationship with Google, who was her former right? She actually worked, she actually worked with Senator Ted Cruz when Ted Cruz was in private practice to sort of uh, deflect or knock, brush away an antitrust suit against Google in Texas, right? Or they were thinking about investigating for... Right, because there's state, there's state antitrust and federal antitrust, right? They're, so you can have a state antitrust case even if you don't have a federal antitrust case. Although usually if you have a state one, 
you're probably justified in having the federal one too, but you know, be that as it may, uh, that was what she was doing. Just, just to hit all the irony buttons. <laughs> you know, not only did she work for Google, but she, you know, in, in that 30 seconds or so between when Ted Cruz was a solicitor general for Texas and, and um, got elected in the Senate, <laughs> he was in private practice and, and, and lobbied for Google. His old boss, Greg Abbott, who is now the governor of Texas, right? I'm from Texas. So, you know, these kinds of things don't surprise me in any way. But, um, you know, it's just kind of funny. But yeah, so she she was um, brought in under the Vacancies Act and she was the head of that division. And the thing that you have to remember is underneath her, the, the, um, the department of the antitrust division that handled the music business consent decrees also handles movies, books, you know, basically all entertainment. <laughs> so it's litigation section three in the, in the antitrust division. And so that was all, the entire entertainment business was under her purview, right? And um, she wasted no time in, uh, in, in- And the 100% and the, and the consent decree went down in flames. I mean, because basically the first thing that happened, we go, songwriters go, what about our private contracts? You can't make us violate our private contracts. You can't pass, you know, these rules and stuff. And so then they said, well, then you're going to just have to drop all of those songs out of the catalogs of the PROs, which, you know, the, I, I don't know what exactly happened then, but, you know, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have made broadcasters happy because then they'd be like, oh, wait a minute, we don't have these songs that are in our blanket licenses. We're going to have to license those blanket licenses. And then, then they said, well, no, those contracts actually were always illegal because we always required 100% licensing, which there was no evidence for. And then just kind of everybody left. The Department of Justice and the Trump administration started and the, the whole thing was withdrawn eventually. But yeah, so Nick, that brings us to, the, to today. Right, so Renana Hess was floated to be the head but what has happened with that? Sort of, you know, as a trial balloon, what by the Biden administration was Renata Hess, but very quickly, especially, you know, sort of a lot of people on kind of to the left of in the Democratic Party were like, hang on a second, you can't appoint a Google lawyer because basically they're Googling her and finding all the stuff that Chris and I wrote about the 100% licensing rule and her you know, work as a Google attorney. So they freaked out. So that she's kind of been pushed down or they've sort of gone away from her. And Yeah, so Jim Kimmelman is now head temporarily. Do you have any insight into him? Well, he's an actor, right? So back to the Vacancies Act, he's an acting, so the clock is on him. You should go ahead and know and explain though why we also feel that Gene Kimmelman may not be the best person in there, may also be conflicted. So why don't you explain that, Chris? Well, in a nutshell, Gene Kimmelman was uh, the CEO of Public Knowledge, right? Um, 
And Public Knowledge is an organization that has been on the wrong side of every copyright issue, opposes artist rights as a matter of drill, right? Oppose the small copyright, small claims court, right? I mean, <laughs> works very closely with Ron Wyden, oppose the Music Modernization Act, right? Oppose the pre-72 um, true up, right? In the, in the Music Modernization Act, that was really their focus was the pre-72 and came up with this absolutely cockamamie um, issue with uh, you know getting masters back to the public domain sooner that were pre-72 and it's just crazy stuff, uh, unnecessarily complicated. And up until the Case Act, you know. Which is the Copyright Small Claims Act that just passed, which we, which was bipartisan, unanimous bipartisan support. Almost, yeah, except. Almost unanimous bipartisan support. <laughs> There's a senator named Ron Wyden, who is a, a close ally of public knowledge. And uh, Ron Wyden uh, is also on the wrong side of every copyright bill and is one of the most sanctimonious people you ever meet in your life, even for Washington is pretty bad. And um, so Wyden was, you know, coming up with these screwball ideas again about how to modify. And basically what they do is, they say, well, you know, we just have a few modifications. And then when you look at the modifications, it's like it just stands the whole thing on its head. You know, and, and copyright small claims like pre-72 is something that has been around forever, right? And, and people have been trying to get something like this passed. And of course, it's not good for big tech because what that would allow people to do is if, if they don't like uh, the way the DMCA is applied, for example, by YouTube, right? And I fully expect this is going to be some of the first cases that go through the, the copyright small claims uh, court when it gets up and running, um, they, instead of being forced to go to federal court, because what, what happens with DMCA is there's a call and response. You see a work of yours that's being infringed, you send a notice. They can then send a counter notice and your next move after that is go to federal court. Well, going to federal court to sue in a copyright infringement case is at least a $100,000 proposition, right? People are gonna do that, but they'll go to copyright small claims, <laughs> right? And, and, and YouTube wants to keep the infringing work up there. You know, this is part of the game, right? This is part of the whack-a-mole. So um, public knowledge was very much opposed to us. And we finally, you know, I kept saying to the lobbyists, just tell them no, <laughs> you know, tell them no, just go away, you know? Just no, I'm not going to negotiate with you. I'm done. You know, just no, right? And I don't know what happened, but ultimately they went away and um, grousing, right? Complaining because it got passed as part of the budget, uh, which is a good way to get, you know, get things passed. Um, but it got passed as part of the budget along with the Felony Streaming uh, Act. And they absolutely have meltdown. But that's our man, Gene Kimmelman, who's now in charge of all the antitrust rules applying to the entire entertainment business. And that's this great. So, yeah, we don't know personally what his views are or what he's been involved in, but, you know, 
usually coming out of, you know, and public knowledge also has, was funded by Google. I imagine they still are. And they were also um, named as a, you know, sort of in the paid blogger shill list in the Oracle v. Google. It was called shill list by journalists, okay, all right. Um, and so their name comes up in there. So we assume there's a close connection to Google there. So that's a little problematic. And, and then the only other case is that where he was involved is, I think he wrote a letter in support of the Justice Department going after Apple in the Apple Books case. Basically Apple Books tried to do something a little more artist friendly, charge a higher price for eBooks. Right, which normally you'd say that's pro-competitive, right? Because you know, well, you know, the, here's another company, right, and they're charging more for their books, so that should benefit Amazon because they're charging less for the books, right? Uh, but somehow there was this crazy rationale that that was actually, you know, authors fixing prices with Apple, and anyway, it, it was an anti-competition case, but it's just weird. You know what I mean? It just, it, it just was a weird application of, of, of anti-competition law, in, in my opinion. It was very anti-author. But anyway, so we, we don't feel like he's a great person there, but we don't really know. But, but Chris, who, who would be some, somebody better to do that job that is also on the short list? Did you look at that short list? Uh, yeah, Jonathan Cantor. Um, is, a, is a guy who has been, I think, pretty even-handed. Um, he, he's, um, he's progressive enough to where I think that he would pass the, um, the requirements of the Biden administration, but um, he's not a wild-eyed progressive. He's not an AOC type, and he's very knowledgeable. He's been doing this for a long time. Um, yeah, well, I think that I think what we what we what we know is the um, ASCAP BMI got a couple of gives in the on the Music Modernization Act um, that elect, give them some better positioning in terms of, of uh, the rate courts. And you know, there was a thorough review of the consent decrees by Macon Delrahim, who was the head of the antitrust division under Trump. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But right now, I think that that's, that dog is put to bed. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to be pulling it out anytime soon. But I didn't think that about 100% licensing either, you know, so uh, you don't really know. But I, I'm assuming that there have been no, there's been no smoke signals that they intend to revisit it or that the societies are going to try to force them to revisit it. Major, major faux pas, you know, kind of lost for um, the uh, publisher lobbyists, though. And so, you know, I, I don't know what they, how they feel about it, but it does seem like they were like completely rejected. And there was a thought there for a while that there was going to actually be some progress on this, but it didn't happen. So, what another day in Washington. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Artist Rights Watch. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can add us on Twitter at Artist Rights or on Facebook at Artist Rights Watch, or you can check out our website, artistrightswatch.com. If you missed any of that, you can check our show notes. It has all that information and our contact information. Also, if you specifically like today's topic, there will also be extra information in the show notes as well, where you can do extra research and learn more about today's topic. We'll catch you again next time, where we will be continuing our watch for artist rights. Cheers.